Great. Well, thanks again um, for having me this weekend. It's been a real joy to to uh, be with you here. And um, I haven't been able to talk by any means to everybody. And uh, but um, yeah, one gets one gets a sense um, from a, cr a community. And um, I have to affirm that you are a lovely church. And uh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, and a sense that the Lord really loves you um, as a church. And I was thinking as well when we were singing that, uh, you know, we're looking, we're looking at this final session about the glory of God, that God is glorious and he, for, for the good of the world, he glorifies his name. He, he's glorified in the gospel and he glorifies himself in his people. And uh, we, we um, just sang that song, Shine Your Light, um, Let the Whole World See the Glory of the Risen King. Uh, shine your light, let Hampstead see the glory of the risen King. Shine your light, let London see the glory of the risen King because people do not see and people are lost without seeing. And, uh, and God's glory is in you as a Christian community. Have confidence to, to, to draw people in, invite people in and go to people. Let them see, um, let them see the glory of God for their for their good and for his glory. So we come to the final of, of the Reformation solas, these great themes of the Reformation. And the final one, uh, the glory of God alone. God's glory alone. Hopefully the picture will become clear. This, um, it's, it's funny, I can say of all, all of the, you know, I often say of, I think I said of Christ alone, that this is the kind of the, the one that really kind of pins things together but and if scripture alone is the kind of method of the reformation the sort of foundation then solideo gloria to the glory of god alone is kind of the the center that draws the other solas into a kind of unified whole the the fact that salvation is revealed in scripture alone through no through none of, none of our doing the gift of scripture the fact that salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, uh, by faith alone, ensures that all glory is God's and not ours. Glory to God alone, said the reformers. And you can see it in our passage of Paul that we had read for us from Ephesians chapter 1. There's the repeated refrain at the end of each paragraph to the praise of God's glory there in verse 6 and again in verse 12 and again in verse 14 to the praise of his glory at the end of each little exposition of the gospel God's work in his world why it's to the praise of his glory the end for which God created the world and saved a people through his son was for the praise of his glory so look at it look at the first paragraph it says that God blesses us with every spiritual blessing by joining us to Christ, placing us in Christ. It says that obviously we didn't choose God. We made no contribution to our salvation. He chose us, verse 4, before creation to be righteous in Christ. And verse 5, he was pleased to, he willed to predestine us to be adopted as sons, as heirs, by joining us to Christ. 
And it's all, verse 6, a gift of grace to the praise of his glory. Or in the second paragraph, because God wanted to lavish his glorious grace upon us, he chose and predestined us to be united to Jesus' death, his blood, that we'd be redeemed, forgiven, and with God when the times reach their fulfilment, that we might be, verse 12, for the praise of his glory. In the final paragraph, we belong to God, his possession. In Christ we will inherit all things, all sealed by the gift of the Holy Spirit, and all, verse 14, to the praise of God's glory. God does all things for the praise of his glory alone. And the Bible, I think, gives us a practical reason for why God does this, and a theological reason, a reason that's tied in with who God is. The practical reason, uh, we see it in verses like Ephesians 2, verse 8, which says this. It says, it's by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's a, there's a, a wonderful little account in the Old Testament in in the story of, of Gideon in the book of Judges, where Gideon, this, uh, this little fella, uh, is raised up by God as a, as a leader. But he's an insecure type, uh, like many of us. And he's sent by God to overcome the massive Midianite army who are threatening Israel. And Gideon manages to muster an army of 32,000 armed men that God, if you know the story in Judges 7, God whittles down this army to 300, who he then sends into battle with trumpets and torches and jars to simply watch as 120,000 Midianite swordsmen fall. God alone saves, and God does all things for his glory alone, and he says in Judges 7 verse 2, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. See, th this is the point that God has to impress upon us. We can't save ourselves. We can offer nothing. God alone saves. And God always and only saves through human weakness. He saves through a man on a cross. He saves through a, a foolish message, the gospel of Jesus. He works through weak people, the church of Jesus Christ. God always maximises his glory and emphasises human weakness so that we humans will never make or communicate the fatal error of thinking that we in any way contribute to our salvation. You see, God will not, God does not want that communicated to the world because it is not true. If you, if you feel weak, a weak person, then you are in the perfectly the right place for God to use you. Because he will always use weakness because he doesn't want people to be communicated that somehow knowing him is about being strong, about being something in yourself. So if you feel weak, you're in the right place. That's the practical reason why God always pursues his own glory. Because he doesn't want it communicated that somehow we contribute. But there's also a theological reason. 
I wonder, uh, maybe this has been coming up to your mind, it does to mine, when we talk about that the end of the world, the reason God created the world was for his own glory. I wonder, do you, do, that can sound a bit sort of distasteful, particularly if you're British. You know, God pursuing his own glory as the greatest good. You know, when people do that, when someone, you know, only wants to talk about themselves, their own achievements, how brilliant they are, it's just, it's just kind of horrible, isn't it? And kind of demeaning. And you just kind of want to bonk them on the head and say, hello, you are not the centre of the world. But you see, with God, God is the centre of the world, isn't he? God is rightly glorious. He created the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. In love, he's redeemed the world. When God glorifies himself, wonderful things happen for all. For God to pursue his glory is the greatest good for all. So God pursuing his glory doesn't kind of debase others, debase humanity. In fact, actually quite the contrary. Humanity is debased when it upholds an imaginary universe denying God's glory. We actually find our true selves and our true happiness when we live all of life to the glory of God alone. And that's one of the things that the Reformation did. It made and has made all of life about the glory of God. John Calvin, who we haven't talked about very much this weekend, um, who in many ways was an even bigger hitter than Martin Luther, a very different character. And it'd be good to discover John Calvin. He's sometimes given quite a bad press, but, uh, but was a remarkable uh, uh, man and teacher of the faith. He called the whole world the theatre of God's glory. And so we're going to try and explain and explore that a bit. All of life as the theatre of God's glory. If you remember, before the Reformation, kind of the glory of God, the place where God was active, was really kind of restricted to the church and the monastery. If we are justified by you know, infusions of grace administered through the sacraments, then the activities that really matter are the sacramental activities in the church. And if you wanted to be devoted to knowing and serving God, you became, you know, a monk or a nun or a priest. And it's really interesting. Remember, I always say we're quite medieval in our thinking, even though we think, you know, we sometimes think that. We sometimes still think, oh, you know, a really kind of godly job to do would be to be a vicar, to kind of go into the church or go into church work or do evangelism. And really, you know, I'm, you know, I'm working in a bank or I'm, you know, I'm a doctor or, you know, and it kind of like, you know, well, that's important, isn't it? Because I'm able to give money to the church and maybe I can do evangelism there. But do you know that thinking is medieval? It's not reformational. It's not biblical. Because the Reformation turned all of that upside down. The Reformation said, you are so turned in on yourself. Even your good works are for you. You can't earn your way to God. The only way you can know God and be right with him is if he gives you righteousness by uniting you with Jesus once for all, a gift of grace alone, received by faith alone. And once that is grasped, something radical happens, a radical shift in perspective. By freeing us up completely from the need for good works for our own salvation, 
the gospel frees us up to do good works for others. All your works and duties that used to be about you become a response of thankfulness to God to serve others. Instead of good works done for God, which takes us out of the world, so spiritual exercises, monasticism, vows of celibacy and poverty, the gospel drives us back into the world to serve others in love. And so the Reformation said that the monastery, the convent or the church become the worst places really to be godly in your life. The best place to glorify God is out in the world serving others. The so-called sacred secular divide was broken down and it affected everything. And now here, here at this point in the talk we would want to spend weeks exploring every aspect of life and saying how has the gospel transformed that but actually let's look at two let's look at the world of the family and the world of work so firstly the family and I'm always aware when I talk about this I mean you have lots of wonderful families uh, in your church not everybody has kids and and uh, and yeah I think that there's something here to kind of look in on but I want to acknowledge that and to say that the world of the family is a bit like the world of community and there's a church where there are people who perhaps don't have families. They are hopefully drawn into that community. It's the world of kind of fellowship, the family. Um, on the 13th of June, 1525, one of the most significant events of the Reformation happened. The Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, got married. Monks don't get married. He married a, 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 an ex-nun <laughs> Katharina von Bora. Luther was 41 and Katie, as he called her, was 26. And she was quite a woman. She probably had to be. She, was, she wasn't just a nun, she was a nun on the run. <laughs> she, was, um, she was one of 12 nuns who Luther had helped escape from a convent. They'd heard his teaching. They'd gone, what are we doing in the convent? You know, this is the worst place we can be to glorify God. You know, we don't have to do good works to work our way out to God. Our good works are for others. And we're, you know, so, that, so he helped them escape from the convent, which actually was a, to escape from a convent was a capital offence. You'd be executed. They executed people for a lot of things in those days. But Luther helped them escape uh, in fish barrels. Apparently there was a guy who delivered herrings to the convent. It's very kind of Lord of the, or the Hobbit, isn't it? Uh, but they, they got into the barrels and they got out and then they, there they were in Wittenberg these 12 nuns on the run and Luther thought what do you do with well you marry them off you try and find them husbands and homes and he managed to find husbands and homes for 11 of them but he couldn't find anyone for Katie and I don't know what that was I, my theory is possibly that Katie was quite picky and maybe Katie had an idea about who she wanted to marry anyway and eventually, although Luther had never intended to marry, although he preached fervently for the goodness of marriage and the family um, after his conversion, he married Katie. I think I said yesterday he gave some reasons for why he married uh, her, one of them being to spite the Pope and the devil, which is a, always a good reason to get married. Um, but he also said that he got married to please his father, Remember, his father had never wanted him to become a monk, and his father, he wanted grandchildren. 
But he said that the third reason that he got married was as a sign of the gospel. Um, uh, actually, Luther was convinced he was going to die soon. He, and everybody wanted to kill him. And he was only protected in this one particular little bit of, of uh, Saxony where Frederick the Wise was kind of protecting him. So he said, I want to get married as a, as a, as a sign of the gospel before my martyrdom. Uh, so maybe he thought, well, I won't be married for long. He ended up being married a long time. <laughs> a sign of the freedom of the gospel of grace, the glory of God in all of life. The glory of God in the changing of nappies. The Luthers had six children, Johannes, Elizabeth, Magdalena, Martin, Paul and Margaret. Two of them tragically died, as children did uh, in that time. Elizabeth in infancy, Magdalena as a teenager. But their family life had a massive effect on Luther, the Reformation, and I think on life ever since. It gave evidence of what Luther believed and what he taught. And lots of people saw the way that he lived and copied it. Theirs was, a, was an open home. They had lots of people to stay. They kind of had a kind of farm. They, they converted an old monastery into a kind of exuberant kind of home, this kind of cloisters. Um, they, uh, they had this thing called table talk every day where the household would gather at the dining table and Luther would just kind of preach or just take questions to whoever was there. And Katie would keep encouraging people to eat their food and stop taking notes before it got cold. <laughs> Luther built a private bowling alley on their land. Um, and Katie, who Luther called the morning star of Wittenberg because of her early rising, she'd get up at 4am every morning, she ran a small farm and most famously brewed beer in their own microbrewery, which is something I'm doing in our church in Dalston. <laughs> Luther radically said, he, he would say, marriage not the monastery is the school of character he'd say family relationships not the lecture hall is the school of godliness because in the home or in church where you really know each other your selfishness and your pride will be exposed far greater than in your little cell in the monastery where you can think you're perfect without interacting with anyone else Marriage changed Martin Luther. You know, you get the impression, it's true, that Martin Luther was no, he, he was no kind of stained glass saint. He was a pretty rough guy. And practically, marriage clearly changed him. Luther said this, he said, Before I was married, my bed was not made for a whole year and became foul with sweat. <laughs> his, lifestyle, his lifestyle was awful, like most bachelors I know. Luther said, if I break wind in Wittenberg, they smell it in Rome. <laughs> I think that was a kind of a, maybe an allusion to his teaching, but it was a, he talked about things like breaking wind and that kind of stuff a lot. That was the 16th century, I suppose. So there were some practical adjustments that needed to be made. I'm sure Katie didn't put up with that for very long. But there were also character changes. Luther actually suffered with terrible depression all of his life and Katie was a great help uh, in his dark times sometimes in humorous ways there's one uh, time when words couldn't get through to Luther so great was his his kind of darkness and his mood and it said that uh, Katie dressed in in black and Luther said are you going to a funeral mm -hmm. no Katie answered but since you act as though God is dead I wanted to join you in mourning 
and Luther quickly recovered. He had a, Luther had a very, very low view of money and possessions. He said this, he said, riches are among the most trivial things on earth and the smallest gift that God gives to a person. I think that's a remarkable thing, isn't it? With our connection with money and possessions. Luther said that's the smallest gift. He was, in, he was, he was, Luther wanted to give all, everything away, everything uh, he could. He wrote to a friend once, he'd recently got married, to say, I have a vase that I want to send you as a wedding present. P.S. Katie has hidden it. You see, in the negotiations of marriage, generosity was one thing, but Luther needed to learn responsibility as well. You have six kids, Martin, Katie would say to him. You can't give everything away. Raising children taught him patience, taught him love. In the middle of the night, he picked up one of his children and said this, Child, what have you done that I should love you so? You have disturbed the whole household with your crying. All my life is patience. I have to have patience with the Pope, patience with the heretics, patience with my family, patience with Katie. Because you see, the family relationships are the school of character. You see, even in our culture, do we, we, we don't value the changing of nappies. We don't value the mother or the father who, who takes time out of work to look after children. And yet, and yet, these are the greatest things. These are the places of glory. Not the monastery, not the church, not the seminary, but the family and the community. God's glory in the family. And then God's glory in the world of work. The reformers began to talk about all work as a calling, a vocation from God. Um, they argued, they argued um, that God has ordered human society in a way that makes all work vital and central. Humans are not self-sufficient uh, individuals. None of us by, our, by ourselves meet all our needs, even our basic um, bodily needs through our own efforts. Rather, we depend on others as they depend upon us. We're all created with the same basic needs, but we're not all created with the same talents and abilities. So each one of us cannot do all things equally well. Not all of us would make good neurosurgeons. That requires, among other things, a rare degree of manual dexterity. Not all of us would make good theoretical physicists. That requires a formidable amount of mathematical ability. Not all of us would make good carpenters. Some of us couldn't connect a hammer with a nail if our lives depended on it. The point is this, Luther and the Reformers would say, that possessing different gifts, each person is to occupy that particular station in life where those, goods, those gifts can be exercised for the common good. So, so the Reformers' idea of vocation was beginning to develop, much bigger than God calling just a chosen few to be monks or priests. God calls every person to love their neighbour by carrying out the duties of the particular stations in life that you find yourself occupying. The reformers, this is the really interesting bit, the reformers saw something more in this biblical idea of the diversity of stations and callings. And I think this is where it gets quite astounding and humbling. Martin Luther looked at the Psalms 
And he said, everywhere I look, it talks about God providing for his world. So Psalm 145 says, God feeds every living thing. Or Psalm 147, God protects the gates of the city. And Luther said, how does God feed every living thing if it is not through the labours of the farmer, the baker, the retailer? How does God protect the gates of the city if it is not through the work of the lawmaker, the police officer, the good citizen? God works through our work, through our callings. And these, wrote Luther, are the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. So what had Luther seen? He'd seen that when ordinary people respond to the duties of the stations which they occupy in the activity of work, God is present, providing for his world. God works through our work to provide for his world. His providence is hidden in all our callings. It's a bit like a parent, um, you know, a parent might want to provide for a child, but he, but he does so by giving the child kind of chores to do that the parent could do much quicker and much better than the, than, than the child would, but wouldn't mature the child. So God provides for his world and he matures us through giving us work to do. So Luther's observation was God's providential presence in all the works of our hands. God th works through all of our work for the service of others. I hope, that, I hope that makes sense. I feel like I haven't explained it very well. But that, this idea that in, in all of the different work that we do, God is actually at work providing for his world. It makes all work really, really important in the work that you do. In our, in our modern culture, work becomes important for what work achieves for us. You know, it might achieve status or recognition or, or money. But actually, these guys wanted to say, you no, know, work in itself is, is so important in the way that it serves the common good, in the way that it expresses God's provision for his world. You know, God's glory is, you know, the... Um, I, I'm really bored of the series now, The Apprentice, because it's the same every time, is it? And they become more and more bonkers, The Apprentices <laughs> do. And you just sort of think, how, how, can it, how can these people be so stupid? But anyway, in the, the, I love the opening titles to the, the Apprentice, where kind of London wakes up in the morning into this, into this blaze of God's glory with all of these people doing their work, making the city happen. You know, and that's so important. That's where God's glory is, and you're all in it. You're making, making that happen. And Christians are the people who recognise this and do it to the glory of God. But the glory of God is a glow in the city in all of these different spheres of work. Understanding work's true nature and purpose can really transform your view of work. Far from being of little or no spiritual account, work is charged with religious significance. Work could almost be said to be sacramental. God is present in and through it. I think seeing this purpose in your work is the key to true job satisfaction. As I said earlier, we can still think that work that really matters is so-called Christian work in a church or a missionary organisation. Um, or if it is so-called secular work, and I think we need to abandon that idea, all work 
is Christian work. Not, and not just because it's an opportunity for evangelism. You know, but we often think that so-called secular work that are worthy jobs are kind of caring professions like medicine or education. And we think that work maybe is a necessary evil and I can make the best of it by evangelizing and earning money to put back into Christian work. That's what I'm good for. But hang on a minute. Seen with biblical eyes, the world of work, all work is ablaze with the glory of God, of God's work through the people he's created and called in everything. You know, from the simplest actions such as sweeping a street or milking a cow to the most brilliant artistic or historic achievements your work matters because God is present in it and through it to serve others and of course seeing this purpose in your work and in work helps us in maybe choosing what job you might do you're within a particular vocation which is to do with your gifts but how does your particular area of vocation best serve the common good because that is what work is for and seeing this purpose in your work motivates you to discipline and excellence if the point of our work was to serve and exalt ourselves then as I said our work inevitably becomes more about us and less about the work and I think that can lead us to easily kind of lose confidence avoid risks if it's all about me but if my work is my God-given calling for the good of others, I think I'm emboldened and encouraged towards excellence in everything that I do. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God's glory in all of life. In January 1546, back in his hometown of Eiselben, aged 63, Martin Luther died. There was no priest present, no sacraments administered, no last confession made. Instead, there was a joyful sadness, but a simple confidence before God. With a twinkle in his eye, Martin Luther is said to have ordered those with him to pray. He said, pray for our Lord God and his gospel, that all may be well with him. For the Council of Trent, that was the great Catholic council that was seeking to, to crush the Reformation ideas. For the Council of Trent and the accursed Pope are very angry with him. <laughs> I don't think Luther had any, any lack of confidence that, that God's word would, would be abundant, that God's glory would be made known, the glory of God alone. God's glory and our happiness are inextricably linked. The only way that the Reformation could possibly not matter today would be if things like beauty, goodness, truth, joy, human flourishing into eternity no longer mattered. We've been made to enjoy God and enjoy him forever. But without the great truths of the Reformation that the Reformation fought for, that display God as glorious, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, we shall not do so. Seeing less of God, we shall be lesser and sadder. Seeing more of him, we shall be fuller and happier. Johann Sebastian Bach famously, uh, you know, he was a Lutheran to the very tapping toes of his feet 
and he would at the end of every um, uh, work of his music he would write SDG on the bottom Soli Deo Gloria to the glory of God alone a world ablaze with God's beauty and glory let's make it known said Bach let's make it known said Luther let's make it known so let's pray together praise you God that you are abundant in glory in your Trinitarian life and love you are overflowing and your glory your beauty your love your kindness has overflowed into the creation of a world has overflowed in the gift of your son and the glorious gospel of your love of his sacrifice of his coming into the world to unite himself with us that we might become part of your family your community eternally thank you for turning us outwards from our internedness to see your glory in the face of Christ and we pray that we would glorify you in all the works of our hands in our family life in our church life in the way that we love and serve we'd be freed up from that anxiety or that self-focus of working and living for our own glory we would see that we are glorified in you and would live and work for the good of others particularly we pray for London we pray for Hampstead we pray that your glory might be made known uh, for the <coughs> glory of your name and for the good of hundreds of thousands around us who who live in that imaginary universe where you are not glorified. We pray, Lord, that you would do all things for your glory and that you might use us to shine. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen.